All right, Josh Smith here, live at Flat 5. Today's guest is one of the baddest dudes on the planet and a great friend. We're both super nerds, so we connected on that level the first time we got to hang. Uh, we love comic books and sci-fi and all that shit. But this dude is one of the baddest guitar players around. Um, I think at the forefront of like this modern guitar hero who blurs the lines between all the styles but loves them and you know is able to kind of retreat them with respect but then still sound come out come out the other end sounding like himself he's just a just a master player and musician has great stuff out if you haven't seen his live dvd you need to see that his new record is fucking slamming he's got great true fire courses he's just a bad dude and it's a pleasure to have him please welcome andy wood hey josh man thank you for an i, I gotta have you do all my intros that was amazing <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> well, dude, it tr it's true. Like, there's such, I mean, obviously, we live in a day and age now where there's insane amount of great guitar players in the world and musicians. But I'm always fascinated and, and have been drawn to guys throughout my life who listen to a lot of stuff and are able to wear their influences on their sleeves while still sounding like themselves. And I feel like you have that. You know, you obviously have listened to a lot of stuff, but when I hear you, you still sound like Andy Wood to me. Oh man, that's that means a lot to me um, because I think growing up, you know, it's like we set these little flags in the mountain in the road for our journey, and those flags are like, man, one day if I can just play whatever by so and so, and I and if I could just get whatever by so and so. But the reality is, is like, um, you know, you get to a certain point in the in the road and in the journey where you want somebody you know i think it's we all want somebody to be like oh man i, I recognize that guy because yeah. that's what makes all of our heroes so special i can hear oh. tony or or ej or or benson and then just a couple of notes you're like oh that's that guy you know and and Absolutely. they wear their influences on their sleeve you know what i mean that's the thing you can't hear ej and not hear hendrix it's there it's right there 100 percent. you listen to benson obviously west montgomery's his guy but he still it's sounds right like george there. benson you listen to stevie he loved albert king more than anything in the world but he sounds like Stevie, you know what yeah. I mean? Like, yeah, that they weren't afraid to go, you know, same, even BB King, he loved Django and T-Bone Walker and Charlie Christian. He doesn't sound like any of those guys, you know what right. I mean? Like, yeah. I so. mean, it's, it really is true. And I think, uh, I think I would say obviously a hundred times over the same thing about you. Like, I love when I hear you like lean a little Danny Gatton in or lean a little Stevie or lean. It's, it's almost, it's almost when, when you hear master players like yourself do it, like it's like tipping the hat. It's like, that's not my playing, but here's, here's where I stole the thing. It's like the tip of the hat, you know? And like, and, yeah, and again, yeah. it's in all of our favorite guys playing, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. All right, dude. So I start all these by kind of getting, a basis for how guys got started. It's interesting to me because I, I don't come from a musical family. Nobody plays guitar or pretty much anything in my family, at least not in my inner circle, the close relatives. So it was a random thing that my dad bought me a guitar. You know, he doesn't even really know why he did it. He just bought it, brought it home, gave it to me three years how old. How old were you? Know? Three, three years old when he brought it. you just like, hey, man, here's a guitar. Yeah, it was actually, the story is the day my sister was born, we're three years apart and our birthdays are just a couple days apart. And they overlooked my third birthday because my mom was in the hospital. And not that I would know this, I'm three, I didn't care. But mm -hmm. the days my sister was born, he brought me home a guitar. He stopped from on the way from the hospital at a music store, bought a guitar and brought it home to me. He still doesn't know why, he said something just made him do it. 
That's beautiful, man. I love that. Yeah, so I know you started early on playing mandolin, but I don't actually know, was your family musical? Like, was there, you know, a reason there or a connection? Yeah, um, in my infancy, uh, my, my grandfather played music, played fiddle and, and bluegrass and stuff. And uh, there was a running joke in the family that there, there's an old bluegrass tune called Bury Me Beneath the Willow, right? It's a really sad song about, you know, guy, girlfriend, fiance, whatever, leaving him or whatever. And then he wants to be buried. It's really sad. <laughs> Ironic thing is apparently in, in the family, Gramsci would play that when I was like crying as an infant and it would like soothe me. That's what he called, you know. So the funny thing is Gramsci played fiddle and, and, and mandolin and, and guitar and stuff and uh, mainly a fiddle player. Like he didn't venture outside of the third fret, you know what I mean, when playing guitar, <laughs> but uh, fiddle and mandolin, and he had all daughters, and then one daughter had a son, me, and another daughter had another son, and within six months of each other. So my granddad, when we turned five and six, he was like, "Here's some instruments," and then he became the organ grinder with his two monkeys, you know, kind of thing. Yeah. And so we 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 hit up all the bluegrass festivals, and uh, you know, I had a a very blessed existence in that I was around live music so mm. much live players. Um, when there was picking, I was playing with other players a lot. And that was really like, I, I didn't realize how thankful I should be because of that, you know, because most people don't have that kind of experience. And most people are playing along with records or what, you know what I mean? Yeah. Kind of doing it like you said, where it's just your thing, man. It's interesting talking to a few guys like yourself who started in the bluegrass world and started either on guitar or mandolin or whatever. I, I, I'm able to draw some parallels between that, not the isolation, but the close knit small circle that is that world, you know, and it's like like blues music in some degree. It's it's a niche, you know what I mean? And you, you have people who are just love it and obsessed with it. It's its own world. So I was fortunate on the other end of the spectrum to be around this blues world when I was such a young kid and get to play with older cats constantly and be picking, you know, their brains, but mostly just getting real world practical application and experience, which can't be replaced. And I'm sure you feel the same way about all that time, you know, in those festivals and all that stuff. I mean, really, that's the end game, right? In my head, when I think about the end game, it's like to play music with other humans, right? Yeah. And when you said real world experience, it's like, dude, here I am every weekend and there's a jam circle and it's all the standard tunes and nobody's slowing the tempos down or altering the the difficulty levels of panhandle rag or whatever you might be playing. It's like they're playing the tunes and like being around it. It's almost like uh, like if you go to another country and you just got transplanted, you would learn the language a lot quicker because you're forced to. You know what yep, I mean? Because yep. that's the way everyone's talking around you. So uh, in some kind of ways, music being a language it's like that in the blues festivals. And like you said, blues festivals and bluegrass festivals being kind of niche or whatever. Like I remember being at these bluegrass festivals when there'd be like two or 3000, maybe 8,000 at Merle Fest. Then mm -hmm. all of a sudden, Oh brother, where art thou happens. And at <laughs> every college campus, everybody's getting a banjo and, and like learning. And now bluegrass festivals are gigantic. Like tell you ride Merle Fest are like hundreds yeah. of thousands of people, you know, it's like yeah. a completely different culture than the group, than what I grew up in, you know? Yeah. Yeah, but that that feeling of, you know, when you when you're really young and you start to progress and get good and you're surrounded by, you know, seasoned veterans 
and older cats who have done it for a long time. There's always, yes, for the most part, they were always really helpful and encouraging. But then there's always a, that little bit of, like, this is how you're supposed to do it, kid, which, which is really helpful, actually, and motivating. I remember clearly moments of, like you said, maybe I'm not ready to play that at the temple. They want to play it at, you know, or this or that. And, and feeling so, like, not, not just angry with myself, but also so extremely motivated that the next week I had it. I was just there. I was ready to go. And those yeah. little looks from your peers and then the, the knowing look the next week when they see that you put in the work and you're ready, you got it then, that was like a drug to me. Like, oh, just, man, man, I just want that look from all That's these guys. And, yeah. and, and, and it's like uh, in, a, in like the nerd culture, it's the Jedi Council, right? You've got the elders of the, of the genre that are playing and they're comfortable playing all the tunes and they know this huge, vast library. And when they just give you a nod of approval, you're just like, I want to do that all the time, you know, and get that, that nod of approval, you know? And, yeah. and, and, and I think that has stayed, stayed the course for me that, you know, th through all the years is like, there's nothing better than when the vibe is right on stage and you hear somebody on stage in the band, you know, where the audience can't hear, but somebody in the band goes, yeah, you know, it's like, yeah. you're like, man, we're making, we're doing the thing, you know? Yep. And, and I, yeah. I, I miss that. I think that whole thing that we're talking about right now is one of the most things that I, just, I can't wait to get back when we get back to doing live stuff. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's the thing, you know, <laughs> we've spent our whole life dedicated to this one thing. And it's like, well, the 95% of it that I've dedicated my life to is, the, is gone. So now I'm making all of my joy from the 5% of the other stuff that I normally do, you know, which is weird. Yeah. yeah. And frustrating. <laughs> Uh, dude, so okay, so you start going with your with your grandpa to all these places, and you're you're learning, you're growing. I mean, you're. At what point do you kind of start thinking about? I know for me it was instantaneous, but like like this is it, like this is my life. I'm gonna, you know, I'm not worried about college or, or you know, maybe you still want to go to college, but you kind of know, I found my thing, you know. Yeah, I think for me. Um... I was around 15 years old and uh, I was going to Gatlinburg on the weekends. I lived in North Carolina and I was going to Gatlinburg and I would occasionally get to set in uh, with, at a bar, at a club, you know, whatever. And uh, there was a guy that owned and managed one of the theaters, Pigeon Forge. For those that don't know that are watching the show, Pigeon Forge is a lot like a Branson or like mm -hmm. a a Vegas without the casinos <laughs> kind of thing, you know, you got all the live shows, all the legacy artists, but you don't have, you know, gambling. So I was a guy owned one of those theaters invited me to play. His name was Billy Baker. And, uh, my parents both signed for me to say that I could live on my own out of state. And the high school principal allowed me like nobody really knew. Right. Like, and it was one of those things where I had one strike. If I messed up once, you know, it was, it was over, but I was uh, kind of living by myself and uh, going and working in the theater, you know, and I, I didn't play any electric guitar. I hadn't had any exposure to that. And then when I was about 15 or 16, um, I heard Brent Mason's solo on Pick It Apart and Mark O'Connor, New Nashville Cats. Yeah, New Nashville and, Cats. and that that one changed my life because that's what made me want to get get my electric guitar out from under the bed, restring it, and like learn how to do it. So it was that and, and Eddie Van Halen. And, and I, I was working in, before I 
known who Steve Morse or Eric Johnson or any of those big influences were. Um, a guy in, in the theater that I was working with, he was the electric guitar player. I was playing acoustic most of the mm-hmm. night, and then they would let me do a feature because I'd won some contests and stuff as a teenager. And they right, kind of like right. did a little feature bluegrass spot or whatever. And uh, he saw my picking hand. He was like, oh, man, you must really love Paul Gilbert and Steve Morse. And I was like, I don't know who these guys are. He's like, what? <laughs> so he made me a mixtape, and it had, you know, too many notes by Steve and Scarified for Love of God by Vi and Cliffs of Dover. And it's just like everything that I think I was supposed to know <laughs> that yeah. or I was supposed to at least heard at that point. So I, I, I heard that mixtape and uh, went down to Disc Exchange, which was the local, you know, CD spot and uh, got everything from all those guys. And just that's where it really kind of hit the ground running. And about that time, it seemed like it wasn't too many years later that things became a little more accessible with uh, more mass-produced live DVDs and people taking old REH videos and and making them. It just seemed like it was a good time to like get stuff. Where previous man, you like, where are we going to find these clips of like Steve Morse playing? Like you couldn't. It was impossible. Yeah, Yeah, it was impossible. So uh, that's that's where it like shifted, and then I got in a rock band. I went to college for a couple of years at UT um, for jazz, and uh, ironically, I wasn't really into jazz. I was in school at the jazz program. Got more into jazz six years after I left jazz school than when I was there, as as it goes. And uh, I ended up leaving jazz school because I started getting calls as a session player um, in in East Tennessee, and and it was a thing where I could come in and cut all the acoustic and mandolin and stuff like that. Even for bigger bands that maybe were like electric rock bands, you know, I mean, when you cut acoustic, it's a different kind of muting and it's a different kind of thing. So I had a skill set there that allowed me to kind of, like you said, hang out with the big boys, like all the session guys and producers were way older than me, but because I had a skill set, I was able to get in that world. And that's where, again, the life just changed and it was like, okay, now I need to see how, the session environment is and stuff like that yeah yeah so man when when you started when so how old were you when that that guy gave you the tape uh 17 or 18 like right in that age and uh yeah it was like eight i remember 18 years old it was like all right dude cliffs of dover is the greatest thing i've ever heard you know it was like that i was like what how do you do it i had a pv bandit uh yeah. A Boss OD1 and a Dynacomp. That was my rig. And a blue yeah. Telecaster. And I was like, I don't even understand. The first time I saw Vi do one of these, like, I was like, that's impossible. He's not even picking the strings. That doesn't even make sense. You know, I had no idea about Legato or any of that. Yeah. And yeah. so it was like culture shock because the idea of being able to play more than one note without striking the string or more than two notes without striking the string, that was like life on Mars. Because yeah, that yeah. doesn't happen on a Martin with 13s on it, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, so, and so what did your, your grandfather and, you know, the, the, your, your circle from your, you know, the upbringing think when you started listening to that stuff and started playing electric guitar? It was funny. My granddad never really cared about the electric guitar. He's like, ah, oh, you know, you like that old rock stuff, don't you? He's like, I bet you like Keith Richards. <laughs> I was like, yeah, man. We were like, yeah, I like Keith. Uh, cool. Um, but it was, you know, with, with my granddad, every time we would get together, it would be, you know, 
get the mandolin and play the Sam Bush and Bill Monroe tunes, you know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, my family was always very supportive, but I have to say, in, in, in a big caveat with my, my family is my mother's got really great ears and uh, she plays a little bit of piano in church, but she's got really good ears. And she always knew her favorite session players. Like she loved Dan Huff. Like that was, and like, so okay. I was, yeah, she, I mean, like my family was like way into it, even though she didn't play guitar or anything. Like she knew who she liked. I'll never forget she liked Brent Rowan a whole lot. Like that was one of her guys, oh, you know? Okay. Yeah, and uh, so my exposure, you know, through that, um, I had I had a family was, you know, they weren't afraid to say, hey, get that, get that clean your tone's a little a little nasally or or whatever it may be you know it's like eh, you know you get that clean that's that was i guess the number one thing that was floating around our house you know it was like Interesting. yeah and, and brian too and, and and ironically you know um brian and i grew up and had both become pro level players you know it's like he's he plays fiddle with travis tritt and he's been with tritt for eight or nine years but yeah i think a lot of that was due to the fact that our family's um, they didn't baby us like as far as like, oh, you're so good, nepotism, stage parents, like none yeah. of that was in that, that was not in our house. And uh and and even today when I have young cats um come to clinics or whatever, I try to be very supportive and do this and you can do it, but I also try to be like, Hey man, you have to do the work. Like it's not like you wake up and it, it, I said it I said it once in a, a thing for local interview thing they were like i'm helping a young kid out um, named hudson mccready and his playing's really come a long ways and he's 13 and uh, i said in the interview i was like hey man this ain't the kind of hobby or lifestyle where everyone gets a participation trophy like there's a lot of really awesome players in the world and if you want to play on that level you really have to put in the hours there's no substitute you know but i'm thankful for that i'm thankful if my family wasn't you know stage parents like my mom to this day she doesn't come to a lot of gigs i mean she came to see me when i played the opry for the first time and stuff like that but in general she's like ah, i'll see you yeah i'll see it yeah. i'll see it at thanksgiving or whatever you know yeah supportive but not sugarcoating everything you know yeah and that's important you know so during that time I mean, I mean, I'm 15, you already moved away to start playing, you know, and, and gigs. But was there any music in school for you? I'm always curious about that with guys. Yeah. Um, ironically, when I moved to Gatlinburg Pittman, um, my core, I was in chorus. I, I you know, I couldn't be in band because what was I going to play? And like, even if it was a jazz ensemble, I didn't have the time because I was leaving around two o'clock in the afternoon during mm. peak seasons to play the matinee shows. Yeah, so. Yeah. I wanted to take music class. So I took chorus and uh, she actually was extremely, extremely supported. Her name was Ruth Lewis and she uh, would, would um, allow me to bring in my little amplifier and telly. And as the chorus things would be working on any kind of choral arrangements, she would set the chord charts down in front of me. So she nurtured, she didn't try to deviate the, the natural thing that I was on, the natural path that I was on. She's very supportive. During my lunch breaks, I would go get my lunch and go to her room and put headphones on and practice. You know, it's like, so yeah, I mean, I didn't, you know, I never, still not a strong sight reader or anything like that, but the support there and the encouragement and the, hey, you need to know what uh, an F chord sounds like when a G's on the bass, like that, like she was, it was that kind of thing. Yeah, that's great, man. Yeah, I, I feel like, you know, guys are 
obviously progressing so much faster now because of the, of the amount of information available to them. But that that's music in the schools thing is missing. Like I had music all through middle school, high school, even elementary school. I had like yeah. ukulele. I had the plastic and, yeah. recorder. Is yeah. that what that thing is? Yeah, I had, we had yeah. that, you know. Yeah. And, and you know, the, the interesting thing, and maybe the viewers could check this out if anyone's feeling benevolent out there. I'm going to do, do a plug. Um, friends over at Songbird Foundation in Chattanooga, Tennessee, they they do a supporting um, the music and in, in the arts in the surrounding areas of, of Middle Tennessee and Chattanooga specifically. And during COVID, um, even when school's in session, they don't allow any band practice so songbirds has been raising money and putting guitars in the classrooms so if anyone wants to help out and uh you know feel free to jump to songbirds those guys are really great and uh i'm like you josh it's like music in the schools please we need that you know it's like a lot of good stuff came out of that well for me it was like it reinforced what i was already working on at home and it gave me a connection where I didn't feel outcast at school because all I cared about was music. And then it let me have some of that at school, you know, which actually made a big difference in my like day to day school life, especially in high school when you can get, you know, you can get kind of insulated. And and it, 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 it was it was important for me to have that during school. I know at least I know it was for me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, same, dude. It's like. Just having the, those few moments, like I said, on a lunch break to, to play the guitar, it's like, man, it kept me, no matter what was going south <laughs> for my day-to-day -day or what was going on in high school, exactly. you know, I think everyone experiences high school differently, but I guarantee you that everyone has a bad day in high school. Like, that, <laughs> that's, that's a thing. So it, it definitely you know, was definitely a lifesaver for me, and, and I was lucky that my principal would let me just bail on my last period to go work you know wow. that's yeah. pretty cool man that's it was amazing cool. man and i think that was a, a big part in due to the music culture in east tennessee mm. like just music in general is everywhere in western north carolina and east tennessee so there's a lot of value on it and obviously in a town whose commerce is dolly parton and music it's like the you know I think I think there's a different value on it here than maybe say another city in America, somewhere in Iowa or something, you know. Yeah, yeah, that's very cool. When when were your first gigs on electric guitar? They started creeping in in those theaters. Okay. I remember one gig. The electric guitar player was going to be out, and it was like the matinee he didn't make. So we had kind of limped through the show and they're like, what are we supposed to do? All of a sudden, can't get a sub for, you know, for two. I was like, well, I can go get my Telecaster and we can like, my, I had a, at that point I graduated. I had a Subway rocket from Mesa Boogie, you know, it's like I <laughs> graduated to tube amps. And so I, I went home and got that and slowly started, started integrating in. And uh, I remember ordering um, a really important guitar to me was uh, a, a Fender 90s B-Bender telecaster i ordered it in white and it came in in black because sometimes fender doesn't <laughs> pay attention but it played so good i kept it you know and so that guitar had a lot of mileage i i, I put three two or three different sets of frets on it over the years you know it's like i really really cut my teeth on that guitar and that's the one i played at guitar mageddon and all that stuff so uh right. those the, a lot of that like 
17 through 22 years old, that was like, and, and I was clubbing at that point. Like I, my days were getting really long going from the summer of my senior year of high school to the freshman year of college. Like I was going to class, um, playing the afternoon matinee, playing the evening show and then clubbing that night till two or three in the morning, you know? Yeah. 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 But man, that, that type of like like we said earlier just that type of that amount of real world experience is like man you grow so fast dude like you really every week do. you feel like you've taken another step and if you if you obviously the answer there is like look how much your playing grows but just pause that because that's such an obvious one you know where a lot of players grow is like your pedal dies get through the rest of the gig you know, just, just like those fundamental things of like something really goes south and yeah. you've got another 45 minutes in the evening or another hour and a half to play. It's like that'll really put some mileage on you and knock the green off in a hurry. hundred oh, percent that, you know, the little things that make you a professional learning that your guitar's intonation sucks because you never, you know, you never played enough with other cats and it's like, okay, I got to get, or that you know, you never change tubes in your amp, you know what I mean? And then finally it fails when you start to actually push it, you know, or your cables suck and you're getting noise all the time and all yeah. that stuff. You, you only, there's no way to learn that than on the, other than on the job. There's really no way. Yeah, yeah that's true. And I think that's one of the things that uh, is the transition from the, the young cat to the old cat, the old cat's the old cats had a lot of blown tubes and a lot of bad amps go, you know, it's like outside of the playing. And I love, I love yeah. that, you know? Yeah. So, so what was that time, I guess, between 19, 17 and 22, when you're gigging a ton and you're growing a ton, when did, when does it become obvious that, okay. I mean, I guess it's already obvious. This is, this is it. You're, you're, you found yeah, your senior path. Year of high school. I was like, I'm not going to do anything else. Yeah. Like even like like when it was like go to college, it was like yeah. There's, I'm I'm going for music or I'm not going. Yeah. 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 Okay. So then when, when did things change slightly from? Okay, maybe I just want to make a living as a musician, to maybe I want to do my own thing as a musician. Well, that was interesting. That was a long journey. That was about eight years of journey. You know, maybe a few years longer. Um. The rock band that I had was right on the verge of, I don't want to say breaking, but you know, it's like we were dealing with the big producers. We were like, yeah. and we, we, we did some tracks with a guy named Nick Rasculinix, who like Dave Grohl and, and all those guys. I mean, Nick's done some amazing records, Allison Chains, Elton John, Rush, all that stuff. So we did some tracks with Nick and, um, that band had some opening, you know, when you're you're opening to the opener kind of thing. But we were going out with other hard rock bands like, you know, Seven Dust. We toured, toured with those guys and uh, various different, you know, hard rock acts. And uh, funny enough that those those relationships still exist to this day. Like Clint Lowry and I still chit chat to this day. And right. uh, it's funny that that band kind of the the nature of the radio rock thing kind of shifted during all of that so i i got a on a gig um where i was playing it was a benefit for the deftones bass player and it was a lot of hard rock guys and they needed a ringer for the gig it was basically um an all-star benefit for his health you know needs fundraiser type of thing and 
there was, you know, so-and-so from, you know, Atreyu, and then so-and-so from Breaking Benjamin, and so-and-so from whatever, and P.O.D., and like, so they needed a one guitarist that could be a ringer in case they had the, the star drummer and the star bass player, but they didn't have a star guitar player for the song, yeah. right? So I was the ringer and made friends with it, who was at that time playing the drums with Breaking Benjamin, and then Scott Stapp and, and Chris, Alter Bridge and Scott Stapp became a thing that were independent of each other, and then so I was on the Scott gig, and then I got promoted to musical director on that gig and then the rascal flats gig and then various other small little runs with whoever you know like low cash or gary allen or who like whoever and um that lasted that was a long time that was like eight eight years of my life eight maybe Mm -hmm. nine years of my life and then from there at the it was the low cash gig we were doing 150 180 shows a year i mean it was like pedal to the metal and at that point i was i'd already made a couple of uh solo records and i had my hands in solo stuff but solo was a a hobby that was a way i could play a lot of notes you know what i mean on the side get get it out of my system you know um so i did disconcerting amalgam and then a few years later i did truth and lie and then you know it was really around the low cash time where I was like, man, my career as a side man is only as good as the artist. And by that, I don't mean their value. I mean, they could just decide they don't want to tour anymore. Yeah. They could retire. They could do, um, if you were working for a female artist, they could get pregnant. <laughs> you know what I mean? He's like, who knows what can happen? And, um, so at that point I was really taking a reflection. I was like, do I want to do the side man thing? forever do i want to try to step out and um i had started doing some some of the sir factory parties and more nam stuff and being featured a little bit more and i think that's the nature of the game though right if you're kind of in the big big hired gun group of players and there's a nam thing you get calls to go you know what i mean it's like there's a lot of that and so i think that really held my hand into really pouring myself into a record um which was junk town and that was like the record where i really started to find my voice in instrumental music um previously to that i segregated things like on truth and lines it's it's a 24 song album half the records an acoustic album half the records an electric record and the title track is on both sides as two different types of song right, right. so i was always separating my bluegrass southern even Almond Brothers influences and more fusion influences and rock influences. Like I always kept things kind of separated and you can hear it in the older songs on the older albums. Junktown was the first time I was like, well, why can't I have this blend of Southern and rock and fusion and stuff? Like why can't it all sit in the same song, not just Mm -hmm. on the same record? And obviously there's a direct line of influence to the Dixie Dregs. Like they, they kind of blend a lot of that stuff. And, uh, that's that record was really important, and I think the guitar community digging it was like a big, hey, you can do this. You know what I mean? You you can step out and do your own thing. And and I think that wasn't a decision that I made for myself as much as it was that I had affirmation from people that I respected, and I had plenty of emails and and messages of guys being like, hey man, I love this song. Do you have tabs for it? And I'm just like, what? <laughs> you know? So. That that was really important. So that was like, I guess what I just gave you was like eleven years of my life just all crammed together. 
Well, yeah, but it, I mean, it, it it happens while it's happening. You don't notice it, but it, it happens the way it's supposed to happen. It's like when I moved to L.A., we're talking, you know, almost 20 years ago. I mean, 2002. I came here to stop doing what I was doing. I had done nothing but play the blues and put out records and tour in a van and beat my head against the wall. So then I decide, okay, I'm going to go to LA. I'm going to be a sideman, And that works. Like I actually make a living and I start to do a decent amount of sessions. I start to go out on the road with different artists doing stuff. And like you said, you start to get, I start my name started to grow in a way that it never used to when I was just doing my own thing back in the blues world because I was getting more known just now as like a guitar player. And so like guitar people were starting to be interested and, and those things started to happen. So I'd make a record, like you just said, that was more like a calling card record of here's a bunch of guitar shit, you know, and, and blah, blah, blah. So I made that record. and But I really started to have the realization while my, my reach was growing, my money was coming from these gigs that, like you said, could end like that. And they kept ending like that. You know, it was be a year of great money and great gigs and touring, and then six months of absolutely nothing. And then yeah. eight months of touring, and then three months of nothing. And, and that's it was the like, thing. And, that, and a lot of times you can end those gigs and then be on great terms. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's very common. I think that's more common than the bad the bad firing or whatever you know it's like oh, yeah and, but and, nobody tours year round and nobody pays nobody you retainer year. anymore yeah. you know it's like i'm not you're not getting you know they love you but still they're not going to pay you for doing nothing it's not like the old days and i just realized is this what i want the rest of like if i because i could have blinked blinked and 30 years would have gone by of me being a side man just hustling my ass off forever and where would i be at the end of that 30 years and I just wasn't sure that that's what I wanted. <coughs> Excuse me. And so, yeah, it was like it naturally pushed me more towards my own thing, especially now people seem to care more. And it was weird. It just just kind of happens. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, like you said, it's like one. I think for me, there were certain gigs that were like these milestone flags as you're climbing Mount Everest sure. goals. And one was like, man, I'd love to play arenas. Like, I don't know why that was a goal for me, but like, you know, it was like cliche guitar player dream. And when that happened, I was like, oh man, sick, dude. I'm like, I'll never forget we were doing, I was with Flats and this, the picture that CMA Fest used was all three Flats and me right in the middle with that big lime green, sir. And I was like... I know I'm not the artist or anything, but this is so cool. We're going to play and it's going to be, you know, 150,000 people in Nissan stadium. Holy cow. What's happening? You know? And then the reality is, is once you do one of those, there's no hire unless you're the artist. Yep. Because what are you going to do? Shift from that to maybe a gig like Justin from pink. Like if Justin left pink and he goes to Carrie Underwood, it, it's it, you're going, you know, across. Yeah. 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 So the only way to go bigger, if that's something that matters, is being the artist yourself. Now, to me, one of the things that matters more than anything is musical satisfaction. And yeah. when when the world started, um, the world as in the guitar community, started to appreciate, kind of dig into what I was doing and like the money was rolling to where I could be my own artist, man, that value of being able to make my own music and just put out an EP of this stuff that I like. And, and, and it's like that musical gratification is a lot higher when you're creating the music than if you're trying to perfect something that somebody else created. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. There's no feeling like releasing something and knowing it has, even if it's a small audience, an audience of people that are interested in it. You know, it's like it, it, I'm so grateful for the fact that if I put out a piece of music today without even telling anybody, a, a, a good number of just my normal people would buy it right away. Yeah. And that's an amazing feeling that you and can't, yeah, you never take that for granted. Yeah. Man, absolutely not. And, and, and you know, one thing that hits me in the, in, in the heart really is like when guys are like, man, I was just having a rough day and this came on my shuffle, you know, and your tune came on my shuffle. It's like, dude, when, yep. when you start, when that becomes a language between strangers, like, holy cow, that, I mean, maybe that's like my hippie side showing or whatever, but like, man, I, I love that. That like, that makes me feel good, you know? And I think when you use the term drug, it's like, once you're high on that, that's the only drug you want, you know? And you, and, oh, and that's yeah. a, that's a very inspirational, motivational type of feeling too, where it's like, you want to, you pour a little bit more into each song and each creation after that. A hundred percent. It's such a motivating factor and great feeling that it helps you stay feeding it like you go further and further towards doing this thing that is so gratifying so much so that you'll turn down other work you know side man where i still get called for stuff that i will turn it down because it doesn't feed that where I, you know the effort where i'm putting in and the gratification that i get back from it because you do there is a moment of shit or get off the pot when you do make this decision to do your thing all the time yeah and you can't just you can't keep jumping back and forth. It's not possible. That's like the Miyagi thing. Yeah. You know, sooner or later, if you walk in the middle of the road, you know, and it's it's true. Um. So yeah. With that said, man, some of the fun, most fun times I've had over recent years have, have been things that I've even had you on. You know, it's like when I got to the point where I was throwing together my own shows, um, and having uh. You know, Nam's a great excuse to have a show full of guitar players. And I noticed that nobody was really doing it. Like if, if a manufacturer didn't put it on, like if Ibanez didn't do it or, or yeah. Sir or whoever, then like the shows weren't like they used to be. You know, mm -hmm. even when I was going originally as a, as a young cat. And then I was like, well, I talked to my manager and I was like, well, what, what's it take? Like what we got to do to like just put it together our own show. And so that kept growing too. And then it turned into the, you know, the woodshed camp, which has been really cool. And I got to yeah. figure out how to get you at it as a side note. Um, but yeah, once you're at a point where you're putting together your own events, it, it definitely only feels like work up until you hit the stage. And then when you look across the stage and it was like the jams that we were doing with Phil and Ariel, I was like, this didn't work. This is amazing. This is just fun, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it. it is. It's We can complain all we want and get frustrated about, oh, I'm trying to get to this level, or oh, it's so much. It is. It's a lot of effort to do the stuff that we do. But when you're out there playing for people and you're playing music that is yours oh. and they care, it oh, doesn't, yeah. it's all worth it, anyways. Oh, it's, yeah. All yeah. that goes away. Yeah. 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 Absolutely, man. Yeah. Crazy, man. Dude, let's let's uh, well, actually, before we get into the 10 questions, I did want to ask you a little bit about uh, the guitar again thing, because I remember from afar back then wondering, like, who was going to win this thing, you know, and what, what, what was it really like for you? You know, was it surreal or was it just kind of like normal? it was funny? It was yeah. really funny. Um, so 
at the time I'd been playing electric guitar for about three years. Mm. Um, it was that thing where I entered, you know, the contest is six months long ish. Yeah. And I entered when I was 21 and won it when I was 22. It was like a cusp thing. Um, but I've been playing guitar, electric guitar for about three years, really intensely up until that point, it was all the bluegrass stuff. So, um, at the same time, I was really into sports cars. Like it was right about the time that like fast and furious and all that culture was going on. I okay. had a tur I had a 1994 twin turbo Supra. All my buddies had RX sevens and Vipers and Supras and stuff. And we would go out on Friday night and a lot of times they would come to whatever club I was playing at. We would hang hang out and, you know, be college kids before. And then we would hang out and be college kids after, you know. But I would, sure. you know, they would just hang out while I clubbed. And, uh, and at the University of Tennessee, it was a great time to be playing live music because, you know, it was party central, you know. So it was super fun. Had to go to Guitar Center that that evening before dinner we would always go get all the cars out shine them up and go to dinner went to the guitar center had to buy some strings and i saw something kind of don't even recall what it was but I'm noodling on it. i was like oh it's kind of cool man you know like whatever and go to put it back and guy comes up to me and it's like bro you should totally enter guitar mageddon you could totally win bro and i was like it's like one of the guys that worked there and i was like what guitar mageddon this sounds like something out of spinal tap like i'm not gonna do that this is not I've done with contests. I did that as a kid. You know, I had this whole like prolific, you know, way of looking at it. My buddies had a better way of looking at it where they go, bro, if you enter, we'll buy your bar tab all weekend. And I was like, done. Okay. You're buying dinner in my bar tab. I'll enter this stupid contest. Let's go. And it was like a joke. So I yeah. came back on Wednesday night. It was like the following Wednesday. Entered, um, you know, won the store and then got a call from uh, one of the guys, Mike. And uh, he said, my score was high enough to go to the regional. I was like, well, what does that mean? Like, and he was like, bro, it's like, we're going to fly you down to Disney World and you're going to play at the House of Blues and be you and six other guys. I was like, well, that sounds amazing. They're like, yeah, we'll pay for everything, you know. So I get down there. My buddy Bubba Casey went, went with me. He, he was one of the other car guys. And, I, you know, and then a bunch of my car guys drove to Florida because it's not that far from Tennessee. And we just had a weekend of it. And I took an acoustic guitar just to kind of hang out by the pool and pick up chicks or whatever. But, and I didn't have any rig. So I just took a cord. I mean, that's how I, they had like marshals that had clean and dirty. It's like, that's yeah, fine. Yeah. Plug into that, you know? And uh, I get there and dudes had these big boomerang loopers. One guy had an even tied rack. Another guy had a pedal board, like what I've got down here, which is like the RJM switcher and all this stuff. Yeah, yeah. And I was just like, what am I supposed to do? And Bub goes, hey, man, just play your acoustic. So, like, I did my play along with the track thing. And then for my freestyle, I just played acoustic, you know, and just kind of did, went back to my roots and did some grass stuff and uh, won. And then went to the final in Las Vegas. The cool thing was is we were all, all the regional winners were going to be, uh, we were the opening act for Cheap Trick. At, at house of blues so i was like dude going to vegas cheap trick gonna be awesome win or lose this party it's great so um luckily man and, and all those guys there could have won it was just happened to be my day you know it's like when you have a good day just happened to be your day where you played good you know and so uh ended up winning and by that point you gotta understand you've won 15 grand and stuff like i want a the music man let me design a guitar 
I'd won one of everything line six made. And, and like, it's like I had tons of stuff. So they get, they cut me a $10,000 check as like the grand, one of the grand prize things. And my granddad had always wanted a D 45 and, uh, you know, he was a construction worker, didn't have it. So guitar center told, uh, Martin what I wanted to do. So they gave, they gave me the, uh, the Martin D45 that's in the catalog from that year. And they gave it to me for 10,000. It should have cost a lot more, but they, you know, and so I gave that to my granddad and that's wow. like the culmination of the story. So, um, it, it was, it was surreal for sure. Like every point of it, you know, was kind of, you can't, truth is stranger than fiction, I guess. And, um, yeah, I was just, just fortunate that it that, that that the dice fell in my in my favor and uh man it was uh, any part of it was awesome you know <laughs> i just i remember you know there was even before that there was like a, a a kind of like steps ladder of all these contests back then you know mm -hmm. and it was like it was always interesting seeing what happened to the guys that won you know and yeah seems and there like was a lot of them have ended people. up to go what i said there was like three thousand people that entered it like it was an insane amount. Like I, I remember getting the guitar center catalog after I'd won it and they put the stats on there. I was like, Holy cow. I didn't know this was this big of a deal. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it, it, you know, it was, uh, it was, and, and, and to, um, you know, as a guy that didn't have a ton of money, it was really like those line six amps, man, that's what I played. Like, mm -hmm. that's what I had. I didn't have anything nicer. You know, it's like, so until that allowed me to make enough money, that's what I, and I played that music man, you know, it was the nicest yeah. guitar I had. And so it was, it was definitely beneficial in more ways than just, Hey, I'm champion or whatever, you know, it's like, yeah. and, and yeah. to see my granddad's face when I handed him that D 45, oh, I can't crazy. imagine that must yeah, it was have been priceless. Yeah. yeah. That, that was, that was worth it all. Yeah. Cool, man. That's thanks for telling me that story. I wanted to hear about it. <laughs> uh, all right, dude, let's get into the 10 questions. Number one, when you first started playing, maybe it was on mandolin and not guitar, but when you first started learning and playing stuff, what was the first tune, riff, lick, anything that once you kind of figured it out, it was like that, it set the hook, like, oh my God, I can't believe I figured this out and I played it right. You know, that, that magic feeling of, well, there's no turning back now, you know? Yeah. Um, the first tune I ever learned was Bull Them Cabbage Down which is an old fiddle tune my granddad taught me. And uh, the first tune that I really fell in love with was an old Bill Monroe tune called Jerusalem Ridge. And when I could play all the way through Jerusalem Ridge, I was like, I'm awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Man, there's nothing like that feeling when you finally learn something you've listened to maybe a million times. Yep. And then you got it. That's, just, That's right. Just, it's, there's no turning back after yeah, that. Yeah, you're done. You're hooked. Yeah. You're hooked, yeah. Do you remember the first solo you ever learned note for note? Sam Bush, uh, Glamour and Grits. The song was Stingray. I learned that one. That was a mandolin tune, obviously. And basically that whole record. Like, I learned Brilliancy and What You Say, and I learned all that stuff. Wow. That's hard stuff, man. Yeah, I mean, I was a 15-year-old kid with nothing better to do. <laughs> Boredom is a powerful ally. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. What? Uh, all right. Number three. What's the first thing you play these days when you pick up a guitar? Do your hands just go somewhere automatically like autopilot? Okay. 
If it's a uh, dreadnought, I will go straight to the G run, the bluegrass Dale McCurry G run. I'll play something way down there and let those open strings kind of do their thing. Mm. Um, if it's a hollow body, um, probably some kind of swing lick, Western swingism. Uh, tellies, I always test them back pickup. Like, oh, that's, I got to know that the back pickup on a Telecaster does its thing. So, usually some kind of chicken picking thing there. Mm. And then with strats, it's more of the, you know, big Texas kind of lick, like, like Timmons or, or EJ or something like that. Like I want, I want that soaring Landau Luke kind of thing. So it really, you know, I think the answer is which guitar am I picking up? And it kind of tells me what to play. Interesting. What yeah. about like, uh, like when you're at the gig and you're getting ready for sound check and you first, oh, junk town, junk town was written from being a sound check. Like that <laughs> song, that riff, uh, I, I, I sound checked with that riff and like a simple version of it. I didn't even have it. And that was just my, like for my front of house guy to get the levels. And I would just sit there and do that for, you know, 20, 30 seconds. And all yes. of a sudden somebody was like, Hey man, you ought to write a tag to that and make that. That's kill. You know, it's like, so it's, to this day, that riff still is like my sound check riff. Nice. Nice. All right. Uh, number four, what key style song groove, whatever do you hear? When you're like doing, rant, you know, when you're cooking breakfast or you're riding, you know, a bike or whatever, do you have a like something that's always kind of in there? Like for me, I'm always when I'm not doing anything, unless I'm working on something and I've got a specific influence that pops in my head. When I'm just on on neutral, I'm always hearing something swinging, like a shuffle or a swing with some, you know, either BB King or Charlie Parker type stuff over the top of it something very you know triplety based and swinging do you have stuff like that that's just always in there yeah it's really fiddle tuny type of sound and stuff and even in my writing for my rock fusion kind of thing that fiddle tune thing sneaks in there like mm. if anybody's got my song forgotten secrets that was actually written on mandolin you know and and it's usually stuff like uh it's like that rolling bela fleck thing you know a lot of that a lot of strong two and four you know were you, uh, speaking of Bela Fleck, uh, were you a Fleck tone? Do you like the Fleck tones? I, anything Bela Fleck has ever done, I love. Um, oh, yeah. Obviously, Fleck tones can get really weird yeah. <laughs> really quick. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, man, hearing ba- Bela's banjo and his lines and the way he puts things together has been one of the single biggest inspirations of my electric guitar playing. Yeah. I remember as a kid, I, I don't think I was hip enough on the first couple of records i was too young as well and i was a blues guy so i I don't think i heard it and then they did the the live record uh live art and i think Mm -hmm. that was pretty much like my freshman year of high school or something like that and i went and saw them and i just lost my mind like i I just like this is the coolest thing i've ever seen yeah and it's the whole experience you know future man and all that craziness and the whole deal yeah it was the whole thing but Man, for for a while there, then I just became obsessed with everything Bella Fleck, you know. And yeah. I would just, I searched out every record. I went and saw him play duo with Edgar Meyer. I went and saw him every anytime I could. Yeah, yeah. I, sometimes yeah. I forget about it too. I, recently, I was in the car with my son, and it came on my Spotify. Actually, that live art album came on, and I was like, man, this is. I feel like I'm in ninth grade again. Like this is amazing, you know. Yeah. yeah, the Helicasters records do that to me. Yeah, that like, that's a time warp for me. When I hear Return of the Helicasters, if it pops on, 
My yeah. shuffle is like I'm immediately a junior in high school. Um, yeah. yeah, the flick, you know, my flick, favorite flick um, is probably Drive. I really love that record. I like That's that. Yeah. 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 Nice, man. Yeah, love that stuff. All right, number five. When did you feel like maybe you started to find your voice on the guitar? Was there a moment you can remember making conscious choices like, ooh, this feels like different and maybe like my thing. I'm going to go further that way. Yeah. Definitely the album Junktown. Mm. Previously to that, I was playing from more of a mind space of I'm going to do this because I can or okay. I'm going to do this because, you know, so-and-so will like it or it sounds like so-and-so or it's it's good because I've heard a, a version of it from so-and-so and I was anchoring value in other people's opinions across the board, you know. Yeah. And yeah. Junktown was a thing where I was making a conscious effort to like man, I, I'm going to do what I, what I think is cool. And, and I think that comes from a point of, I was always so afraid of the country aspect of my playing and the, the, the Southern aspect of being hokey or cheesy because a lot of instrumentals, uh, instrumental guitar players, they will release a country sounding yes. song and it's always so cheesy and it never sounds authentic. And, uh, it, and to me, that kind of country playing is it kind of turns me off a little bit it's not like when i hear you know like albert lee or brent or something like that like that that's like terrifying like that that level of playing is or danny gatton or something like that's not cheesy or hokey it's just terrifying so it's like i wanted to it, with the album junk town that's when i really started being like man i'm gonna do this southern thing and it's not cheesy like i don't think any of these songs are cheesy you know they're not like cliches yeah. yeah yeah that was a big conscious effort okay yeah and, and i mean what about now do you still find yourself kind of like purposely making certain choices because they feel yeah. more like you yeah or i'm looking for me 100%? i'm looking for me at the forefront of everything these days yeah. and i used to be a little bit more of like oh they're gonna now, if I'm on a session or if I'm on a sideman gig, I play whatever's sure. needed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But in general, I'm looking for like, what would I play? Not like I'm going to play the Luke thing <laughs> or that I'm not going to quote the. And if I do something like that, I want it to feel a bit like an inside thing for the audience and myself to enjoy together. Right. right like if right. I quote some kind of Eric Johnson esque kind of passage, I want people to be like, oh man, that's an EJ thing. Like that's yeah. like meant for everyone to enjoy, you know? Yeah. 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 What's cool too is now when you and I probably do sessions, or at least I know for me, um, because of whatever, not that we're famous or anything, but the, the, we've reached some level of notoriety as a player. The, the calls that I get now, they just want me to be me anyways, which yeah, is really nice. I've noticed I've getting that a lot more too. It's like, hey man, what would you do over this? And the, and yeah. and and it used to be a little bit more like, hey man, I need I need a Paisley Brad Paisley kind of riff here. Yeah. And now yeah. it's like, yeah, there's I know I know what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. It, it means I actually get less sessions than I did before, but the ones that I do get, they just want me to be me. And that's valuable. Yeah. So yeah. valuable. Yeah. Oh man. All right, number six. What do you consider your biggest weakness on guitar? I'm very curious to know what you think is your weakness. I rush really bad. <laughs> if I get excited, I will rush. Okay. 
but if I've got, but, but that's, Hey, that goes into tying into, I want to hire a bad to the bone rhythm section. Yeah. Um, and when I do sessions or whatever, it's like clicks going, it's like, I'm fine. But like, if I'm right, playing right. by myself, I kick something off, like I'll, I'll rush it, you know? Yeah. And then, I mean, God, it's like, give, give anybody 20 years of obsessing over Sam Bush and Dale McCurry. And it's like, yeah, of course they rush. <laughs> of course. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. dude, you gotta be thinking of some of that stuff is so technically precise that you're thinking about things like you got to be thinking about fingerings like so specific about some of that stuff when i think specifically about fingering fast passages that's when i rush too Absolutely. yeah 100 yeah that's that's the thing is you're really um and some of those tempos are ambitious you know oh yeah and i think i think that's the thing and i think um if any guitar player is really being honest with themselves a weakness for all of us is constantly trying to find a better version of our own playing to be the best version of ourselves right like, I mean, I love that quote about, um, that, that Steve Bai said, if you want to sound like me, you've got to sound like you. Yeah. And that's a great quote. Yeah, he's right. I mean, it's, 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 it's also our, you know, biggest motivator. It's like, I, I want to be, you know, <laughs> better tomorrow. I want to find the better version of me yeah. every day. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Who who's a huge influence on your guitar playing that people would be surprised to hear? Pavarotti. Really? See yeah. now that you got me. I'm surprised. Okay, in what way? Nasun Dorma from uh from that what whichever opera uh I can't remember which one it is that's that it's from, but it's Nasun Dorma. Um the three tenors I I've listened to the, so many versions of that song, but Pavarotti sang with the thing that I want to find that I want to play with. Like everybody is a, in that world is a really fabulous tenor. There's great tenors everywhere. Um, being a tenor in opera is kind of like being a guitar player. It's mm -hmm. the, it's the quarterback, you know what I mean? It's like, that's the yeah. glory position. And Pavarotti just surpassed every cliche of being a tenor. Like when he sings, I don't hear opera. I don't hear, I just hear this magic. Like he's like Jeff Beck or something. You know what well, I mean? Well, it's funny you say that. See, I, I haven't listened to a ton of opera music, but when I do listen to stuff that grabs me, I instantly relate it to listening to saxophone players. You know what I mean? Like, oh, yeah. Playing long notes and melodies and ballads. Like, to me, when I hear an opera that nails me, it's the same I feel when I listen to Naima or something by yeah. Coltrane. Yeah. It, it's that feeling that I get. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I think if I said Chick Corea, people would be like, Oh, I've heard him cover Spain or like, you know, it's like, I, but I think nobody would really be like, Hey man, I got likes Pavarotti. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's a good one. I like it. All right. Okay. In a gig situation, would you rather have a great guitar and a shitty amp or vice versa? A uh, great guitar, amp and a whatever guitar. Great guitar. Really? You'd pick the guitar? I'd pick the guitar. Okay, you give see, me, I'm give the me, You give me this whiskey or this black, sir, with a PV Bandit, I, I'll get the job done. Like, it's I'm 100% the opposite. It's about what my hands touch. Okay. Like, to me, the hand, it, like, I have, it, it's like I'm driving this thing, and it's almost like the guitar in a lot of ways is like the tires between the driver and the road. 
Like well, if you I'm handed me if you handed me it like one of those paper thin picks, it would be like kryptonite. You would just oh. watch it crumble in front of you. Like I gotta have like it's gotta feel right over here. And that's something I still struggle with to this day because I want a heavier string in my right hand and I want a lighter string in my left hand, especially these days where I'm doing all this faux slide stuff. Yeah. It's funny, man. The pick, I think, yeah, the pick can be, I mean, if I had to play, if you force me to play a gig through a, a jazz course, I'd be terrible. I've done enough of those where I know, okay, I need the amp more than the guitar because I've done enough fly gigs in my life, thousands of them, where I've had my guitar, my pedal board, and I was forced to play through a Red Knob Twin or a JC120 or a Crate, and it was a horrible gig. You know, Not that I, I didn't pull it off. That's different. It's just yeah. you know in your heart that's terrible. Whereas if I had a, you know, a decent amp, a Fender amp with some verb and whatever, I'd have, I'd have had a better night. But the pick, that's, that's super interesting. You forced me to play a gig with a with a fucking uh, jazz three pick. I couldn't even function. The gig would uh, it wouldn't happen. Yeah, yeah. it's crazy yeah. what we value, you know, and like what we go to. Yeah. There's no way I could play a whole night's gig with a jazz three pick. Wouldn't be, uh, nothing would happen. It, w it wouldn't be possible. Which pick do you use, Josh? I use a gravity pick that's like a Fender heavy yeah, yeah, shape, yeah. one point yeah, yeah, yeah. millimeter. Yeah. Yeah. Just has a bit of a grip on it. Yeah, yeah mine. So on mandolin and acoustic, I use these big blue chips. Mm -hmm. And then this is roughly the size of a Jazz 3. And then on electric, I use that. So you can see how much more pick I use when I'm playing like Dreadnought stuff or yeah. mandolin stuff. See, when I pick up a Jazz 3 and play guitar, it's like I can't even hit the strings with it. My fingers, I got ham hands. You know? Which and is they, funny that, because J Joe plays with a Jazz 3, doesn't he? Yeah, he does. Yeah. Yeah. Where is it out? <laughs> Especially if I try to play chords with the jazz three, forget about it. It's like, I it's just like, it's like nothing. No, it doesn't happen. Yeah. yeah. Hey, so maybe you've just discovered that the pick is the most important part of the equation. It is a big part of the equation. It definitely is a big part. Yeah. Of it. All right. Uh, number nine, what keeps you motivated to, to continue working on being a better player, a better musician, to just keep keep moving forward you know we've all known guys who you know especially as kids who we looked up to who maybe reach a level of contentment and they don't keep growing as a musician yeah, they rest Not that they get laurels yeah resting on laurels yeah. yeah yeah what keeps you from doing that from from pushing forward all the time one is just the love of music and the seeking to i just want to sound better like i still play fiddle tunes that i grew up on I just want to play them better. Right. And truthfully, the other one is my friends, guys like you, guys like Mark, guys, guys that I'm, I'm, you know, there's, it's a lot like a sports team. You surround yourself with those that make you push, you know, and, and, and that's valuable. Like I, I can't thank all of my friends that I've met in the industry um, enough for the inspiration. Like it's, okay. It's great. Um, I always call Andy Timmons Obi-Wan because over the past couple of years, we've become buds and I've learned so much. And it's not been like he's been like teaching me. It's just yeah. being in that energy, like that inspiration. So like, yeah, man, like you're an inspiration. And 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 uh, Travis Toy is an amazing inspiration. And my cousin Brian. And then every player that that I see, it's like, yeah, man, the ones that speak to me when they play, yeah, like Joey Landreth. Like when he plays, it gives me a feeling of like, holy cow, yeah. I want to, 
not only do I love that, but I want to better. I want to better myself. Yeah. And a lot of times these days, it's a lot of slide players. Very cool. Yeah. And I don't play any slide. Yeah, <laughs> it right, just it right. speaks to me, you know? Yeah. Well, it is. I mean, obviously you surround yourself with friends, you know, and you're, uh, we have talented friends. So it's like, I'm, we're always around guys who just, wow, I can't do that. You know, like, that's amazing. I want to, I'd like to, to learn how to do that. And it does, it keeps you pushing forward. And I mean, just in, I've always felt like, I don't know about you. There's two things that have driven me most of my lifetime playing guitar. One was, I always had a little bit of an obsessive streak about, uh, keeping maintain maintaining maintenance like never going backwards like i i saw because i think because i played with guys so much older than me as such a young kid i would see certain guys start to i it was very vivid to me see guys lose ability lose the edge when they would Yeah, yeah, yeah and so that was important to me the maintenance and then the other side was like i always kind of felt like a responsibility to this yeah. that's brought me everything that is good in my life to like give it back as much effort as that's uh, right as the things that it's given me you know and you know what's interesting when you watch cats get older to where like let's say i, I i'm trying to remember so I was, I was at a sound check i'm friends with dave wiener right and mm-hmm. we were he was him and vi were playing like Asheville or something and somebody in the fan you know how you can buy the vip early yeah, things sure. and, and spend some time with the artists so I was just kind of on the side in the wings or whatever, but a fan asked if Steve was going to play. I don't remember the tune. I think it was Blue Powder or something like that. Steve's like, man, I just can't execute it consistently. He's like, I'm glad I recorded it. I'm glad I toured it when I did. I just don't – and I don't – forgive me if that's not the specific tune, but it yeah. was one of those freak show tunes, you know, that just yeah. – yeah. and I love watching artists age gracefully. That's really important to me. And watching someone like Robert Plant, John Paul Jones – like the music that John Paul Jones has shifted to making and, and Robert Plant, it's amazing. And it's not resting upon laurels. It's not trying to be 22-year-old Led yeah. Zeppelin. Yeah. And Jeff Beck's the same way. Like, I'm going to say, this is a hot take. Get ready. Comment section is going to hate me for it. My favorite Jeff Beck record, Emotion Commotion. Huh. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that I heard that and it just spoke to me like it was just like he came out and that's come from a guy blow by blow all the like all the things that that like define the guy but like emotion commotion and and that's that's not 28 year old jeff beck you know no, no. you know wow yeah yeah I, I mean it it's it's interesting because i i struggle that's when i struggle with like i just i felt it even during this pandemic like shit has gone away and it's not because I'm not playing. I'm playing tons, but I'm not playing in the way that I'm used. To. I'm not playing with guys. You know, my There's biggest muscle is, is like the link between my head and my hands, my improvisational muscle, and that shit's going away. You know what I yeah. mean? Because yeah. improvising is a conversation with other musicians, and right now you and I sitting in our studios, we're talking to ourselves when we improvise. Yeah, yeah, it's, and yeah, improvising in a vacuum is just. It's just, it, it's not real, you know? Yeah. yeah. I was, I said this in an interview the other day because someone asked me, you know, how much guitar are you playing these days? And I said, tons. I'm playing tons. But it's, you know, they were trying to, so you're probably playing great. And I was like, I said, no, I feel like I'm playing horrible. 
And it's like, why? You know, and I was like, because I just can't get that feeling that I need. Like, there's no dynamics sitting on the couch. Yeah. You know, I'm not I'm not playing with dynamics. I was just talking to one of my, my Patreons. I run a Patreon page. And uh, I was telling them, I was like, yeah, man, I've really struggled with, like, feeling good about my playing recently. Right. And with right. the loss of my grandfather a couple of weeks ago, culminating with the pandemic like where we're not leaving. It's like all of this negative energy. And then on top of it, I'm not playing with any guys. I've just, I've had this weight on me of like, ah, I don't feel good when I play. But the thing is, is I don't back off. Like I'm sitting, I was sitting here practicing before our call, you know, it's yeah. like, yeah. 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 We'll get it back. You know, we'll get it back. Make we'll, a have, call. we'll have new shit to bring in when we get it back, but it's going to, man, I, I don't, it's like those first couple gigs back, like when I start, I don't want anybody to see those gigs. Yeah, I'm let's sorry. not, can we have a no cell phone clause on the yeah. first month of live gigs? Yeah, that's how I feel about it, for sure. Same, bro, yeah. same. Oh, man. All right, number 10. Are you a guy who has a five-year plan, or are you a guy who flies by the seat of his pants? And I mean, do you, do you set goals for yourself? Is there some specific shit? that you want to accomplish in the next five years or is it just let's see what happens i set i set goals that aren't on a time frame it was like i was talking about like i want to play arenas like as a kid you know it's like i set goals that i don't really this one sounds really trivial and cliche but as a kid i always thought it'd be awesome to have my own signature model guitar like i always like i think everybody kind of think you know we all think that you know and uh it's when I set goals, it's stuff that like is just this thing. And it's not like, like I'm a horrible planner. I, I'm much better like adapting as we go, especially on tour. You kind of get good at that skill set when you're on tour because nothing is really best laid plans shift. Um, but as far as the next five years, man, I would, God, next five months like who knows because of the pandemic but in a perfect world i want to get back to playing live i want to be playing uh i've got two half-baked records in the oven right now and uh i want to get those out and i would love it if uh the guitar community and and everyone would you know maybe get give a chance for some more kennedy wood stuff like it's kind of funny that uh we were right on the verge of doing a ton of stuff right before the pandemic and and that that band's been really rewarding to me because that's not a shred rock you know that's not a a noty gig that's a better way to word it it's just kind of that band's got more in common with marshall tucker or almond brothers or chris stapleton than it does with like guitar hero antics but right, that's a right. very rewarding gig because Dave and I write everything and it's just Dave and I like, that's like the way we write is like, I write the music and then he puts the lyrics to it. And that's not because I don't write lyrics or Dave doesn't write music. That's just kind of the formula we use. Sure, and that sure. provides a very rewarding thing. You know what I mean? Yeah, so yeah, good. when I think of goals and, and five years, it's like, man, I, I just want to make stuff. Um, I want to play live again. Um, and I would like to, uh, play some big, bigger, I mean, I guess it'd be fair to say it's like, yeah, man, if Kennedy Wood was playing, uh, Royal Abbott Hall and, you know, Red Rocks, like, yeah, that'd be awesome. Yeah. Yeah. But Hey, we got to be allowed to play outside first (laughs) before we can play anywhere. So hopefully we could get some things right with this pandemic and get the gigging again. Yeah. I, I struggle with long-term planning. I have yeah. like levels that I would like to reach, 
but I, I don't have like, you know, drawn out plans for how to get there. <laughs> well, it's funny because that's an energy. You're putting an energy into something and then that's not something that I find very a rewarding space to put my energy. My thing is like if my goal is just uh, doesn't have a time limit on it and I'm just saying like, hey, I want this band to be huge or hey, I want, you know, whatever. That's a musical thing. Immediately, that makes me put my energy into we need to write really great songs. I need to practice and get better at the guitar. I need to get better tone. I need to, you know, I took some time during the, the like, honestly, I thought we would be out of the pandemic by now. Yeah. Um, so at the end of the summer, I was rewiring my main live board and I was spending my time getting ready to go back out, you know. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm always kind of looking to get back out on the road and get to playing live shows that's that's really important nice man well dude that's it that's the end of the 10 questions i love it, it to the end. <laughs> dude thank you for taking the time out of your day to do this um this was amazing it's greatly appreciated to uh that you did it um and for the rulers we'll get turned to in a second if you're not a ruler you should become a ruler or at least please hit the subscribe button uh, because it keeps me motivated to actually create content for you. Yeah. Um, there'll be links to all things Andy Wood in the description of this video. So make sure you support Andy, buy his albums, buy a Sir Signature guitar, <laughs> buy a True Fire course, everything you can to, to support this guy and keep him making music. And, uh, dude, thank you for doing this. I, I greatly appreciate it. Oh, dude, it was amazing to hang, dude. Yeah, man. All right. And for the rulers, we'll be right back for the turn two.